Hi everybody, it's Steve Weir, Grace Point's Pastor of Arts and Communication, and I'm here to say welcome, or welcome back, to the Grace Point Podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or on our YouTube channel. Feel free to check out our website for all the latest information about everything going on here at Grace Point. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step toward becoming a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. You know, our our Christian belief system includes some really deep tensions. So, for example, we, we believe in one God, but he exists in three persons. So that can be hard to wrap our head around. We believe, because of the scriptures, that Jesus is 100% human, but he is 100% God. That can be hard to kind of figure out how does that all fit together. We, we look around at the brokenness of our world and we think that scripture tells us that God is good and holy and just, and yet we see the evil in the world and we think how can a good, perfect, strong, powerful God allow all of the evil that we see? And then we come to the question that we're going to encounter today. Are our human destinies predetermined by God or do we as human beings have freedom to choose our our future? it's It's an important question. There's a lot at stake because if God sovereignly predetermines our future, then how does he hold anyone accountable for their choices? How could he condemn anyone for choosing not to follow him if he's the one who chooses these things ahead of time. On the other hand, if it's all up to us and it's all about our free choice, then doesn't that undermine the sovereignty of of God? Doesn't that somehow put us in the driver's seat? That that doesn't seem right either. So so we're faced with this tension between either feeling a pressure to make the right choices all the time or a passivity to say, what difference do my choices make anyway? That's a lot of tension, and most of us have enough tension in our lives going on already that we say, I don't have room for any more. And so a lot of us just kind of skip theological tensions like that. We're like, I got my head busy with the, you know, just trying to get my kids up in the morning and get them out to school or whatever it it happens to be. So a lot of us try to just like skip these hard questions of the faith. And to be honest with you, I kind of wish sometimes I could skip them too. Like as I've come into, we're we're coming up to Romans chapter nine today. And I was kind of like, wow, I wish I could kind of skip over this. But this is one of the advantages or disadvantages, depending on how you look at it, of studying a a Bible book all the way through is that we don't have the the luxury of of being able to skip over anything. And and really that, that is best for us in the long run because we don't wanna be skipping anything. So we're, we're not going to skip. So, so some people would like to skip. Other people say, I'm not gonna skip it, but they end up settling for a solution that is, is really too simplistic and, and say, well, I'm gonna resolve it this way, but that doesn't really take into consideration all of the scriptures that talk about this. So this morning, we're not gonna skip the hard stuff and hopefully we're not gonna be simplistic about it. 
We're, we're going to dive in, if, if you will. If, if Romans is a pool, we are standing on the edge of the deep end, all right? And so what I wanna do this morning in this message is uh, I, I'm hoping to provide you with some floaties, all right? So we're getting into the deep end. We're gonna have something to help hold us up as we walk through these next few chapters. If you would turn to Romans 9 with me, we will dive in. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there's a Bible there close to the seat, uh, on a seat close to you, and Romans 9 is on page 1046. We are in this series on Romans. We started in January. We're going all the way to Thanksgiving. And because it's so long, I had advice from somebody that I thought was good to say, let's divide it into uh, um, to series. To, uh, so like when you're watching your favorite Netflix show, it, it shows up in series, okay? So we have had, we're, we've had two series so far. Uh, seasons, I said series. No, it's, it's seasons, all right. Wow, off to a rough start. Okay, so there's a, the, the theme of season one of Romans, which runs from chapter one through three, is the righteousness of God revealed in universal condemnation. So the bad news for us as human beings is that there is a condemnation that we all deserve. No one is exempt. It is universal. There is this huge gap between the holiness and the righteousness of God. And the worse we are, the better he looks. So the righteousness of God is actually revealed in our condemnation. That's bad news for us. But season two brought us good news in that the righteousness of God is revealed in accessible salvation. There is, a, there is a salvation available to us from the condemnation that God has made available through the person of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf. So season two took us from about halfway through Romans three all the way through Romans eight. Now today we begin season three, which is gonna take us from Romans nine through 11. And I will just tell you that chapters nine through 11 are the most dense and the most controversial of all of Romans. Um, so again, we're not gonna skip it, we're on the edge. Let's hold hands and we're gonna dive in, okay? So chapter nine, verse one. I'm speaking the truth in Christ, Paul says. I am not lying, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now, I just wanna pause there for a second and say that if, if you've been with us, if you were with us in June, looking at Romans chapter eight, this is a sharp turn, okay? This is kind of unexpected. It feels like it doesn't follow from chapter eight because we just ended at the end of June with chapter eight telling us that because there is no condemnation, there is no separation. There, because we are no longer condemned in our sin, there is no separation. There can never be a separation between us and Christ Jesus, the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's fantastic news. So all of chapter eight is just these riches of all of this, the Holy Spirit that God has made available to us. It's all this awesome stuff. And now we get to chapter nine, and Paul says, I have anguish in my heart. So there's quite a sharp turn in our thought process here. We'll read on, verse three. For I could wish that I myself were accursed 
and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's talking about his fellow Jews. Verse four, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants. He's making a list here of nine things that are privileges of the Jewish people. Adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul is grieving something. He's grieving a deep concern about his fellow Jewish people who are not embracing the grace that comes through Jesus. And this was true in Paul's day. It's true largely for us today that most of the Jewish people, most people who are physically descended from Abraham, do not embrace Jesus as their Messiah. They have rejected him as their Messiah. And so, because the righteousness of God made available to us by faith through Jesus, if they, if they set that aside, the only other way to achieve righteousness before God is through the law, through obeying the law. That's what they're still trying to do. And Paul has already made it really clear that we can't follow the law well enough for that to produce righteousness in us. So Paul is grieving that his people are missing it because they have rejected their Messiah. Many Jewish people still looking for a Messiah to come. And Paul is grieving that to the point where he's like, I wish I could be cursed and cut off from Christ on your behalf. But he knows that there was only one who could be a substitute, and that was Jesus. Now, that's the introduction to chapter nine. Now we head into a very dense paragraph, and I wanna kinda give you the summary of it before we read it so that you don't get lost in, in the midst of it. And, and here's the overview, okay? God often does things in ways that we do not expect and in ways that go against our cultural expectations. And in fact, God has the right to do whatever he wants to do. That's the privilege you get when you're God. Now, let's read verse nine. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Let me just pause there and clarify what he, he's just said, that my Jewish kinspeople are not embracing Christ. And so it would look like there are promises that God has made that God may not be keeping. And so he's very intent, verse six, it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, Rebekah, was told the older will serve the younger. All right, so again, 
Very, very dense. Let's un unpack this. Paul, Paul has a concern for his fellow Jewish kinsmen, but he has a concern that's even deeper than that. And that's what we see in verse six. It is not as though the word of God has failed. See, Paul is very concerned that people might think, people, his listeners, his readers of this letter might think that God is not keeping his promises to his people. And, God, and Paul wants to be sure that they know he is. See, God had made a promise to Abraham that it may seem that he's not keeping. Let me share this with you from Genesis 17. God speaking to Abraham, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So God is making this promise to say, I'm, I'm creating this nation, I'm creating this new nation so that I can relate to you in a way that I've never related to a nation before. And I'm doing that to be an example to all the other nations to see here's what it looks like to live under the rule and the love of God. And so he says here in this promise, I'm establishing this covenant between, not just between me and you, Abraham, but between your offspring after you throughout all their generations. So God promised, I'm gonna be working through this Jewish nation, but now so many of those people who are descendant from Abraham are not following the path that has now been revealed in Christ. And so does that mean that God's promises cannot be trusted? Well, Paul gives a very clear answer here, again in verse six. It is not as though the word of God, the promise of God has failed. And now he's gonna explain that God is trustworthy. He says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his physical offspring. I'm inserting the word physical there just so we understand what he's talking about. But he says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In, in other words, God, God is keeping his promise to work through the Jewish people. He's just keeping it through a portion of the Jewish people, the portion, the remnant of Jewish people who have placed their trust in Christ. It's not just because you're physically descended as, as a Jewish person that you're part of this promise. So let's look at a little bit of background here because it's, it's easy to get lost. There's, there's so much that Paul is assuming that we know here. So let's review that background. Abraham had a firstborn son whose name was Ishmael. Isaac comes later, okay? And Isaac, as the younger child, is identified here as the child of promise. He's the one through whom God is going to fulfill his promises down through the generations. Paul quotes Genesis 21 here in verse seven when he says, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. So God chooses the younger over the older as the line through which the blessing will come. This, this flies in the face of cultural expectations because especially in their day, probably even more so in, in, than in our day, the, the firstborn had a special privileged position. They were honored with a birthright, and they were honored with a double blessing, a double inheritance when it came time to divide up the inheritance. 
when dad and mom died, they got a double portion of that. And so that's what everybody had in their mind. That's what everybody had their, their expectation. So that this doesn't seem fair. This is like, well, Ishmael's older. He should be the first in line. So we look for an explanation because this doesn't seem fair. And so maybe the explanation could be that Ishmael, even though he was born first, he was actually born to a servant. He was born to a slave. So Abraham's proper wife was Sarah. And Sarah, for many years, for 90 years to be exact, could not have children. And so God makes this promise. Sarah says, wow, Abraham, you know, we're not producing any children here, so how about if you take my servant and have a child by her? And so that's the origin of Ishmael. And so maybe it is that God is choosing Isaac, whose birth was miraculous. So Sarah's 90 years old, Abraham's 100 years old, they should not be having children. It wasn't that different back then than it was now. Like she's way beyond the years of being able to, to have a child. And yet God says, you're gonna have this very special child. It was so ridiculous that she laughed at it. Sarah laughed at it. So they named their son Laughter. That's what Isaac means, because they're like, this is, this is crazy. But what's happening in that situation is God is flexing. And he's like saying, look what I can do that you cannot do. And so it kind of makes sense. Like Isaac's such a special child. Let's honor him. Let's make him part of this, this line of promise. So that kind of makes some sense why in this situation, God might choose the younger over the older. But then he gives a second example, and it kind of blows that idea out of the water. All right, verse 10. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, that's who we've been talking about, though those children conceived were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, Rebecca, was told, the older will serve the younger. All right, there's a lot of parallels between Sarah's situation and Rebecca's situation. Both of them were struggling with infertility. And in both cases, God divinely intervened and overcame their infertility to give them children. In both cases, the, the younger son became the heir of the covenant promises. In both cases, the older brother became a rival, and there was all this tension between them. So there's a lot of similarities, but there's a crucial, crucial difference. There is, there's no parenting disparity or social disparity between Jacob and his brother Esau. Paul is very clear here. They have the same mom and dad. So that's not why the younger got chosen. He says in verse 10, this is really interesting. He says, also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. The, the, the Greek is actually more clear than this. The, the NIV does a better job translating this. It says that Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Not only did they have the same father, they were conceived at the same moment. And I looked this up this week. I actually talked to a doctor to, to clarify this because it is actually possible, though very, very rare, for a woman to give birth to fraternal twins who 
are fathered by two different men because fraternal twins come from two separate eggs. They can be fertilized by two different men. Obviously, very, very rare. But Paul wants to be very clear. This is what the Greek indicates here is that it happened at the same moment of conception. This is, there's one dad here. There's one mom here. There is no difference between Jacob and his brother Esau. And yet, God chooses the younger to be privileged over the older. Verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, and there was nothing, by the way, in their background, in their parentage, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So that seems like a a cultural faux pas. I mean, that just doesn't seem fair. God, why would you choose the younger over the older? And so that seems bad enough, but then we read in verse 13. I didn't get there yet. If you read ahead, then you're like, is he gonna get to that first? All right, so now we're gonna read verse 13. Before they were born, it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Woe, Sparky. Like you're telling me that God hates somebody. This is the only time, by the way, in the New Testament that it says that God hates anyone. The Old Testament does tell us that in general, God hates the wicked, and we get that. God hates sin, he hates evil, he hates those who perpetrate it. But here it says God hates Esau. That seems harsh. There's some serious tension going on here. How do we explain this? Well, a a few thoughts. Um, He is quoting, Paul is quoting here, the prophet Malachi. So from Malachi 1, verse 2. And Malachi is talking about the nations that came from these two men, Esau and Jacob. So there's a broader sense here going on than specific reference to the individuals. That's, that's part of it. Another part of it is I would encourage you to think culturally that the his, historically Jewish people are generally more expressive than we tend to be in our Western kind of mindset. And let me, let me give you an example of that. Um, we see throughout the scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, we see Jewish people, when they get upset about something, when they're deeply grieved, deeply angry about something, what do they do? They tear their clothes. When was the last time you tore your clothes when you were upset about something? See, we, we tend to be so like buttoned down and we, we probably stuff a lot of our emotions to our detriment and they're just like, it's just out there. It's like, this is how I feel. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm deeply grieved. So there's some of that. There's kind of a hyperbolicness sometimes to an expression. And then, and then the last thing I'll say about this is this. Um, Jesus actually said, you, you may remember this. Jesus said, if someone wants to be my disciple, then they need to hate their father and their mother and their wife and their children if you wanna be my disciple, you're gonna to have to hate these people in, in your life. And it's, it's like, wow, how do we put this together now? Because in our 21st century evangelical mindset, I mean, we say, wow, we've gotta put our family first. Like, we gotta put our family first in front of even ministry. And yet Jesus is saying, if you, if you wanna follow me, if you're serious about following me, you need to hate these people. Does he mean that we're supposed to despise them and treat them poorly? No. It's a comparison. 
He's saying, in comparison, your devotion to me should be so strong that any devotion you have to anybody else in your, your sphere, any other relative you have, it should look almost like hate because you're so devoted to me. You can't, Jesus is saying, you can't let anybody else be even close to your devotion to me. And by the way, when we put Jesus at that level in our devotion, then we're gonna love those people around us that much better. That's in fact the only way. We're gonna love those people, those people in our family well is if Jesus is first and ruling in our lives. So, so really what's happening here in Romans 9 verse 13 is a comparison of God saying, I loved Jacob, I've set him apart, I have chosen him to be the one through this line comes. Unexpectedly, it's my prerogative as God to do that. Esau, I have rejected. And so I have given this incredible privilege, God says, to, to Jacob and to his descendants. That may not be fully satisfying, I get it. There's a lot of tension in, in all of this. Let's go deeper, since we're already you know, jumping in the deep end. Let's go deeper into this phrase in verse 11 that talks about God's purpose of election. Okay, we, we get uncomfortable with the idea that God would just choose who will believe and who will live a life of, of faith. God favored Isaac over Ishmael. God favored Jacob over Esau. And we wanna know why. We, we wanna know why that is because we wanna get in line behind the favored ones. We wanna know what do we need to do in order to be favored too. But Paul is very clear that God decided these individuals before they did anything. I mean, he says that in verse 11. God's, it's about God's purpose of election, not because of works, but because of him who, who calls. So, so some people have tried to explain what's going on here with the idea of foreknowledge. And they say, well, God is outside of time, which, which I do believe scripture indicates that. Like God, God, time is a construct for us who are creatures and we have a limited amount of time. God, God is infinite. He has no beginning, no end. He stands outside of time. So he doesn't see time in a linear fashion like we do. We have a past and a present. God's not like that. He just sees it kind of all laid out there in front of him. So it makes sense that he could look at a Jacob and say, oh, look, Jacob is going to, at some point, act in faith, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose him. And, and look, Isaac, like he's gonna be a man of faith, so I'm, I'm gonna choose him based on the fact that God already knows what they're going to do. But there, there's a couple of problems with that, not the least of which means that that puts us as human beings back into the driver's seat. And it really means that God's not choosing at all. We're choosing and then God chooses us because we chose. I, yeah, that doesn't really work that kind of undermines God's sovereignty. It also would give us a reason to boast. Oh, I'm sure glad I have faith and this person over here doesn't. And Paul's been very clear, there is no room whatsoever for any human being to boast. And in the case of Jacob, foreknowledge of faith just doesn't even work. I mean, if you know Jacob's life, he is a deceiver 
He's a manipulator. He is trying to bargain with God. In his old age, he's playing favorites with his children. Jacob is no poster child for faith. So it's not like God's looking and saying, oh, that's a great one, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick him. I mean, God actually chose Jacob in spite of what he was like. So this leaves us with some serious, serious tensions. Are you ready for the floaty? Okay, here's the floaty. Trusting God is our stability in unresolvable tensions. Trusting God is our stability in unresolvable tensions. See, we don't like the idea that there would be unresolvable tensions. I mean, we, we wanna figure them all out. I mean, we wanna have an answer for everything. But this truth that trusting God is our stability and unresolvable tension, this, this is actually what helps us in theological tensions like we're talking about here today. It helps us in our everyday tensions. So if you're in an unresolvable tension where you're just like financially, I have no idea how this is ever gonna get resolved in my life or my lifetime, we, we trust God in the midst of that unresolvable tension. If your tension is around your, your kids, we're talking a lot about children and progeny here this morning. So maybe you have a burden and a tension around what you're watching your kids choose to do and you're like, how is this gonna, gonna turn out? Trusting God is your stability in that unresolvable and unresolved tension. Proverbs 3, 5 says, trust in the Lord, in the one true God, Yahweh, with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Okay, please don't hear this as a call to shut off your brain. Okay, this is, this is not, please, please, please don't shut off your brain, all right? Use your brain to help you understand more, but please trust in God more than you trust in your brain. Okay, if you were here uh, probably about a month ago now, one of our, well, our elder chairman, Ken Kavalik, led us in prayer one Sunday morning, and he, he gave this number of how many stars there are. And it was fun because he referenced this almost like a throwaway line in Genesis chapter one that says, and he created the stars. And Ken said, there are, we, we know now of 200 billion trillion stars. And I, I kind of always chuckle whenever I hear these numbers because about every you know, three to five years, we send out another telescope and we find that that number is like, you know, whatever, 100 times more than it was before. Anyway, so I think there's probably you know, a whole lot more than even that ridiculous number that we can't wrap our heads around. The universe is so enormous beyond our comprehension. And God has all of those stars named. So he's bigger than that. So it kind of puts us into perspective, right? I mean, do you really think that you're gonna wrap your brain around all the mysteries of the universe? Give yourself a break. And, and trust God instead. Keep pursuing greater understanding. Keep, keep pursuing greater knowledge, but don't expect, don't, don't pridefully expect that you're ever going to figure it all out. And we trust in the Lord, and that's what fills the gap in for us. Trusting God is our stability in unresolvable tension. Here's a thought. Some tensions are actually best left unresolved. 
I'm gonna ask Paula to come. Paula, you've seen up here playing the violin even this morning. And I asked her if she would come and demonstrate for us what it's like when strings are under tension, okay? So there's four strings on the violin, all of them are under tension, and that allows us to hear something like this. So tension allows that. Now, Paula brought in the same four strings. These are all the same strings, right? Okay, let's just say that we're looking at this poor violin and these poor strings, and we're like, man, we gotta release this tension. Man, strings, be free. And so now we have these. Now, here's what we get. Okay, can you hit it harder? I'm not, I'm not hearing anything. All right, that's, that's what we get. That's what we get when we release the tension. Thank you, Paula. Thank you for the beautiful music under tension. So tension sometimes is something that we need. Those of you who are not so artistic or musical, let's, let's use a scientific and an engineering example. Let's talk about the Golden Gate Bridge, okay? So beautiful bridge. Maybe some of you have had the opportunity to, to drive across that. Let's look at a side view of the Golden Gate Bridge, and you can see there that there are two suspension cables that run the length there, and they're, they're the curved pieces. They are cemented in on both sides and under tension. And from those suspension cables, there are 250 pairs of vertical suspension ropes that are also in tension. Let's just say, tension bad. Let's free the cables for crying out loud. And so we go and we chop up the concrete on both sides, on both shores there. What's gonna happen? We're gonna have a whole bunch of people in the bay needing floaties, right? So sometimes, my point is, sometimes tension is actually a good thing. Sometimes tension leads to beauty, like music. Sometimes tension leads to strength. And, and um, so, trusting God is our stability in unresolvable tension. I love this verse from Deuteronomy 29, 29, near the end of the Torah, near the end of the law that God has given to his people Israel. It says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. There are secret things that God has not revealed. He reserves the right to keep some things as mysteries that we will never unravel. But the things that he has revealed, those are the things that we hold onto. And here's, if there's any takeaway from this this morning, it's this. Some of us spend so much time trying to unravel what we don't know that we miss what God has clearly revealed and, and what we should be obeying because it's already very clear to us. That's what this verse is telling us. The things that are revealed belong to us that we may do the words of this law. So if some of us are, are spending so much energy, we're spending too much energy trying to unravel the things that God says, you know what, it's just gonna stay a mystery when we need to understand the things that are clear 
so that we can be obedient to him. So which wins in the end? God's sovereignty or human free will? Yes. So as I, as I approached this season of Romans 9 through 11, I, I honestly, I felt a lot of pressure. I'm like, I've got to unravel these secrets, right? I've got to, I've got to unravel like what theologians have been wrestling with for, for thousands of years. And I, I pretty quickly came to the conclusion that I needed a different goal. And so here was my new goal, and maybe this is one for you as we spend time in this season in July and August. Instead of trying to fully comprehend and understand these mysteries, it's to pursue a deeper understanding than I have now. So I hope that at the end of August, I have a deeper understanding of God's predestination versus human will. I hope that I have a better understanding than I do now, but I don't expect that it's gonna be all cleared up. There will still be tension, but that allows us to appreciate the beauty and the strength that is inherent when things are under tension. I'll close with this quote from my man, Douglas Moo, who is much, much smarter than I am. He says, Paul is content to hold the truths of God's absolute sovereignty and of full human responsibility without reconciling them. We would do well to emulate his approach. Let's pray. Father, there are some mysteries and secrets that we acknowledge that you have not fully explained to us. And Lord, we, we confess before you that sometimes we demand that you do things that really are not part of your, your plan. So we just confess our, our arrogance at times to making any kind of demand on you. Lord, we recognize your privilege that somehow in your mind and your wise perspective, all of this makes perfect sense, but in our very tiny, finite minds, no wonder we can't fully wrap our heads around it. So forgive us, Lord, for arrogance. Help us to be humble before you and accept what we do understand and to be obedient to you in, in those things. Thank you that while there are tensions in Scripture that we'll never fully resolve, there are other tensions that you have fully resolved. And thank you that you have resolved the tension of our separation from you, that you have resolved that through the person and the work of Jesus Christ so that instead of being separated for eternity, we can be with you today and for eternity. So we thank you for your work in resolving that. And we celebrate it, Lord, in a few moments in communion. Thank you, Jesus, for, for, being, for coming as Messiah. We, we worship you and thank you today. In Jesus' name, amen.